Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And we have another excellent episode for you guys today. Uh, we had on a good friend of ours named Adam Korzanuski to talk about everything from war to Hamiltonian economics to all of the crazy stuff that the Democrats got away with with the census this last go around. Uh, it was a fantastic episode, but before we get to his bio, I want to encourage you guys, as always, to go to America americanmoment.org there you can find information about upcoming events that we have you can uh, read things on amcanon and just in general learn more about what we're about it's constantly updating uh, and also we have a pretty deep podcast backlog now uh, if you have been with us since the beginning well a thank you uh, but if you only joined in say episode 15 there's still 15 uh, pretty good episodes before that that you can check out as well uh, we have been going on a pretty steady clip for a while now i can't believe it's been more than six months of us doing it so be sure to check it out if you have any long drives ahead of you from final trump summer trips uh, someone uh, tweeted a couple weeks ago that they were very grateful to us uh, for having six hours worth of podcast content for them to consume on a road trip uh we are more than eager to furnish you with said content i can't even imagine listening to our voices for that long like that just sounds like grating on my ears yeah my loved ones really have a number done on them every time we go on a road trip but anyway uh <laughs> with that we'll go now to our guest for today we have adam korzanuski uh don't bother asking how to spell that it's very eastern european um, he is a veteran of the united states marine corps and he was educated at Columbia University. He has a background in military intelligence, technology, politics, and finance, uh, and and worked at a hedge fund before uh, working in politics and startups. He was an appointee in the Trump administration in the Treasury Department and the Commerce Department, where he was working at the Census Bureau. Uh, he's a subject matter expert on basically everything under the sun. I've never uh, had a conversation with Adam where I didn't learn something, but very specifically, uh, financial policy, trade and industrial policy, national security and the census itself. Uh, he is uh, a wealth of knowledge. He's a great follow on Twitter at RealAdamK if you would like to follow him there. And we had a wide-ranging conversation on everything from uh, what's going on with the Afghanistan withdrawal, his experience serving in the military and being deployed to Afghanistan as a signals intelligence officer. He transitioned to uh, broader neoliberal economics and the issues with it and, and how he thinks we can draw from the past to go forward. And, and then we went deep on the census bureau and if you're at all even a little bit of a math nerd or you find political apportionment or redistricting interesting there you are in for a treat uh in the last third or so because uh we get deep into what imputation means what group block imputation is and all of the financial wizard uh all of the mathematical wizardry that the census bureau uh got into to make sure that uh the democratic party uh, kept as many of their seats as possible so i thought it was a fantastic episode yeah, it was it was kind of crazy. I'm I'm going to recommend if you don't know what the word imputation means right now, please look it up before starting this episode because it gets used a lot. Uh, but I learned more about the, the, the Census Bureau than I think I ever knew uh, previously, especially the way that these, um, you know, supposedly independent organizations can be used as political cudgels. Uh, to enforce uh, the will of the Democratic Party. So definitely make sure you stay tuned all the way to the end. And now we'll go to Adam Korzeniski.
Howdy, Adam. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, we always like to start with how our guests got to the point where they are now. You've had a, a, you've worn a lot of different hats over the course of your career. Walk us through how uh, we have the the Adam Korsniewski we have today. So long story short, after high school, I enlisted in the Marine Corps. I did five years in the Marine Corps, deploying to Afghanistan twice. I was a signals intelligence operative um, for a brief p- moment. Right afterwards, I worked as a defense contractor, and then I started going to school at Columbia University. After school. I worked in finance for a brief period and then um, started working in politics. Donald Trump became president. You know, obviously it's huge energy, big league, and I wanted to be in part of it. Um, you know, it's like that was the that was the big thing that was going on at the time. It was a life changing experience for me watching that happen. And so I got more serious into politics. Eventually, one day I was running uh, congressional campaigns and then uh, one day I just wanted wanted to kind of take a break. One of the things that's really not fun about um, doing uh, professional politics is the sales role, which is you're constantly having to do it all the time. So I decided to take a break and take a job up with the Census Bureau. About a few months into it, I was running part of Queens County. I had thousands of people un- underneath me. One day I get a phone call and it's one of the ones from the White House operator, operator number. It's a really weird number with like all zeros at the end. And uh, they asked me if I, it was James Bacon from the White House. And he's like, can I, can, can you come in this weekend to interview? At first, I didn't believe him. I have a much more profane way of explaining that story, <laughs> like what I said to him. He emails me from an official government email address. I interviewed there, and then I get a job with the Trump administration. January 20th rolls around. We're out of office, and so now I'm here. That's fantastic. Yeah, so let's rewind a little bit back to your uh, deployments to, to Afghanistan. You know, I've been seeing a lot of people uh, – involved in the discourse on Afghanistan over the right. last couple of weeks. Uh, and I think we've seen that a lot of people's <clears throat> minds have changed on this issue. Can you kind of walk us through how your opinion uh, has evolved over time on Afghanistan, you know, between serving and then after being out of the Marine Corps? Yeah. So it's a little, it's a little complicated to explain because at one point, you know, I joined the Marine Corps to fight in the war on terrorism. And basically that's what I got to do. Um, so I really wasn't interested in like the liberal interventionist change the world, save them from themselves type of uh, shenaniganry that mm-hmm. we're familiar with, on, especially in the Twitter sphere. Um, however, so when I first went to was going to the Marine Corps and we're about to deploy to Afghanistan um, in 2010, there was a huge, you know, there was, it was part of the surge. And so we were no like our primary role was combat at the time. But, you know, there's already starting to be this inkling of. Uh, this liberal narrative of like how we're there to build schools and like, you know, change things. And, uh, you know, one of the things that was very characteristically different from Iraq, at least the tone and tenor of Iraq uh, deployments from when I saw people going back and forth from them. Um, I was supposed to go into Iraq to Iraq in 2009, but they drew down the deployment and I was too new for them to be like to allow them to allow me to go um, and versus Afghanistan was uh, Afghanistan was supposed to be almost explicitly a combat type of deployment, whereas Iraq had a lot of um, what's called the three block war, which, you know, one block will be, you know, you hardcore combat operations. Next block will be humanitarian operations. And third block would be like security governance and economics. And so, but you already started seeing the rhetoric uh, build up at the time. But so I deployed to Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, for the most part at the time, it was like still very much a combat role. I come back and then I go again 
um, to roughly the same place. Um, and you're already starting to see a totally different tone of everything. It was still a very hot environment in terms of combat operations, but you know, there was a lot more State Department flunkies running around. And like not like the the cool ones who are actually working for the CIA, mm-hmm. like uh, because but the actual State Department people, civil affairs, military civil affairs that is, and all that jazz. And they're starting to talk about building um, building schools, building hospitals, and things like that. And I was just like thinking of myself after walking through a, a field of like six foot tall poppy plants. I'm like, we can't even convince people to not grow poppy like you know not make make and process and refine heroin like how do we how do we convince them to send their kids to school it was one of the most absurd things so and then years later as i started getting involved in politics i once upon a day um was talking to a lieutenant governor a former lieutenant governor of the state of massachusetts um her name doesn't really matter because i don't know if she's had a career after that but um and she was talking about why we're in afghanistan to educate women and um, I was just struck. I was like, that's such a weird thing to say. And but come to find out that was, you know, their reason for actually having us in combat. What was it like to obviously be motivated to join the military in part because you thought that we were fighting a just war for just reasons and then to sort of come to realize that that it wasn't what it was sold to people as? I mean, I this is why I think you see a lot of especially members of Congress that have served tend to be some of the most hawkish members is some of it just uh, is is to avoid any kind of cognitive dissonance, because I'm, I'm sure it can be hard to, to, you know, see your friends die in, in the battlefield and wonder if if it was any, worth it at all. So you got to like you have for members of Congress, especially you have to really draw the distinction between people actually serving in combat and people who just had combat deployments. Um, so I was on Newsmax yesterday and the, there's a representative whose name I won't name drop just to out of to be a gentleman about it, who was talking about his, you know, reason why we should stay in Afghanistan and how uh, a variety of things like air power could have made the difference with the Taliban, et cetera. And I looked up at this guy's Wikipedia and, you know, he didn't really he was so senior by the time the war on terrorism began. He was already largely an administrative um functionary he was already i think already either colonel or general by the time war the war on terrorism began and so you know there's a there's a strong distinction there versus someone where there's a lot more authenticity with like the combat side of things like a tom cotton you know tom cotton being an infantry platoon commander or whatever the army calls them i think patrol platoon leaders um you know like there's 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 a, a degree of um difference between those especially if you see the rhetoric that they're saying but you know the hawkishness is kind of weird, but this is part of this liberal imbibing of these um, neoliberal narratives of how we need to change the world, make it safe for international capital to go into places. We'll probably get to that later. But, um, you know, it's very it's very unusual. But if you think of the military as a conservative institution, you'll be surprised. But, you know, the more senior you go, especially in the officer ranks, the less less conservative people become less America first conservative. They become more, you know, neoconservative, if you will, just because they're more interested in using military force to accomplish social aims. I think this is a very interesting point. Um, you know, Semper Fidelis, by the way, I Thank was you. I was I was 
I was born uh, just off base at Pendleton. My my dad is a Marine. Uh, he would Rock. smack me upside the head if I ever said was a Marine. <laughs> oh, there you go. Um, you know that's kind of that's kind of the way it goes. But I think it's really important to acknowledge that that's not what the Marine Corps or any other branch of the military, quite frankly, is for. It's not for you know this peaceful liberal internationalism. You know building institutions so we can like teach women why trans pride matters in Afghanistan or whatever. They're meant to defend the citizens of the United States. I mean, how how do you see that having changed over time? I mean, even since since you served. Right. So the change has started before probably mostly in McNamara's day, the Secretary of Defense for Lyndon Baines Johnson. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, World War II was also people don't realize there were social experiments with the military. Um, precisely because of the progressive era, using it as kind of this way of like using it for social promotion. Um, it didn't work out in World War II because they had a world war to fight. But, you know, they they it, they don't stop trying because it's the uh, administrative state, the bureaucracy. These are largely people who are ultra liberal in their mentality that actually enforces um, intra intra departmental policies. Um, so. Yeah, I mean it's it's changed it changes a lot, especially during the Obama administration, which I primarily served under. You know, you had the progressive creeping of progressivism, like progressive morals, not just the administrative policies, into the military during that time. And so you ended up having a military that's much more. Um, I hate to use the word woke because it's been so overused, but you know the things that are colloquially used for woke are what was called social justice warriors you know, as becoming this, um, these major reasons for uh, military bureaucracy. And it, it does become disconnected with combat. But philosophically, where the disconnect comes from is that the military is relied on to do so many things that's really not politically purposeful, right? And this is the big thing, like, um, you know, I had a small argument with a representative recently, and like, they he was like, oh, you can't use politics to determine military aims. I'm like, that's actually the point of a politician is to uh, to engage in the political, right? The military is under civilian rule. So it's like if you don't if you just defer to the military every single time, then you get like all sorts of absurd consequences because the military has to report aims and objectives and um, and oversight to the mil- to the civilian side. Mm-hmm. So like you're basically deferring your own oversight role to the military, which is not supposed to do it. So they're just going to keep doing the same thing over and over again until someone else comes and says something. And so, you know, as a result on the ground, you know, you're you, what you have to train for in a variety of different ways becomes uh, endless. You know, everything from, you know, people talk about, you know, all this like anti, um, you know, all this racial awareness type of stuff on uh, in the military. Well, that's part of the thing you have to train for because, you know, that's that's like a f- function of the military. Um, you know, you have to train for gender awareness. Like it, you have to do it, train for it for the stateside and abroad, you know, for the foreign customs abroad. You have to uh, train to, you know, engage in type police action, you know, solving and uh, in, being intermediaries for local tribal conflicts. You have to learn how to like do, you know, inf- uh, maneuver and uh, fire and maneuver. So if you're like trying to ass- assault and take an objective, you have to do all sorts of extra stuff on top of it. And what ends up happening is you start missing out on the pur- uh, purpose, the mission, which for as a national 
a security strategy, the mission of the military is to defend the nation. But once you get down to the ground, then it's like what the it becomes whatever the situation requires you to do. And that's uh, that disconnect is so wide that people don't understand that. Did you see the precursors to the the woke stuff while you served, or does it feel like it accelerated around the time people tend to note these things accelerated, you know, 2013, 2014? Yeah, so definitely 2013, 2014 when, was when I first really became aware of it. Like I came out of the uh, military pretty libertarian and uh, quite quickly I got snapped back to reality. <laughs> um, and, you know, I got to see kind of this woke stuff begin um, when I started going to school and I um, got to start meeting actual policy decision makers. You know, they're largely let off the leash by the, uh, especially during the Obama second term. Um, you know, I remember I actually met Dr. Jill Biden um, <laughs> at Columbia and I was just like surprised that, um, I mean, she's actually very aware of veterans issues, which is really quite nice. Um, and she had a really nice sentiment about it, but the, the, what it was being back channeled into the military at the time was surprising to me. Um, and that was the rise of the online social justice warrior type thing, you know, especially as you roll from 2014 to 2016, you know, a lot of this really accelerates because they're, they, they have now their great enemy, which at first was Brexit and the uh, European right. And then it became Donald Trump, who is like their version of the same thing. And so, or at least in their head, um, I was going to say, I wish, <laughs> right. Well, you know, to some extent you do, but some extent you actually don't, but we can get into that later. But the, um, the reality is that they, you know, they, they, they basically started going on this moral crusade and they actually really imposed it. But I remember the most shocking point was, um, um, was during the don't ask, don't tell repeal. And I use re I air quote repeal because, a repeal don't ask don't tell goes back it would mean that you'd go back to the things where being gay was just straight banned mm -hmm. whereas it's like a it's actually just a change in the rules mm -hmm. um so you know like for the most part like people in the military don't really care that much it's like even religious conservatives don't care that much like it's it's the question actually becomes you know what what does that mean for policy and i remember at marine corps we had a the assistant secretary for the Air Force or undersecretary for the Air Force, a Marine general and some other uh, bureaucrat um, come to like a small panel of us randomly selected to ask questions of them about this policy thing so they get feedback. And um, this Marine major bravely stood up and asked the question. He's like, he's like, I'm in charge of a small unit. He's like, I have a, you know, I'm in charge of also the barracks. Like, um, what is the policies uh, that are going to be implemented for people who aren't comfortable for um, having a gay roommate, you know, or like what if like there's some like or how are we going to manage it? Are, is there going to be policies? Is that unit level? And the uh, assistant secretary or undersecretary of the Air Force at the time under Biden or not Biden, Obama, same difference. Um, <laughs> they uh, uh, he stood up and he's like, well, if you can't figure it out, major, maybe you shouldn't be an officer. And like basically the whole crowd went nuts because that wasn't even the point of the question is that whether or not there's going to be a top down policy or how do we how does that actually get implemented? Because the the policy was a radical overnight change. And, you know, it wasn't until years later that I realized that the people in charge of the bureaucracies actually just don't care that they they just expect you to shut up and listen. And there's no feedback. And that's what happened in Afghanistan. Like, I'm surprised that people are surprised that 
Afghanistan collapsed. I was like, you know, like, where were you this whole last 20 years? It's the Afghan army wasn't going to be something that stands up to the Taliban long term. Yeah, I mean, it was crazy seeing some of these statistics. Uh, my source is Twitter, mm. FYI, ahead of time. Right. Uh, but uh, seeing some of these statistics about, like, how well-funded, um, you know, the Afghani army was compared to the Taliban and, like, all the weapons and support that they had. I mean, they, if you were a betting man and you knew nothing about Afghanistan, like, I I feel like most people probably would have bet on them. And it's, it was mere days that they collapsed. So, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of layers to unpack. So I'll try to go through it quickly. Um, So first of all, Afghan is the, uh, as the, the noun is the person Afghani is the currency for Mm. all those on Twitter who uh, keep screwing up. No offense. Um, But it's all good. I've never been to the Middle East. Yeah. So no, it's no worries. I don't know if I've actually ever seen Afghani currency. Yeah. So like for what it's worth. Because it's not real. (laughs) Well, I mean, like it's as real as you make it, right? It's, it's, that's the. Oh, so the same as the U.S. dollar. Right. (laughs) But like, I'll, I'll also fight back on the gold bugs about that. But, um, so, you know, like, you know, just like high level, where, where, where was that 90 day assessment that the Afghans are going to collapse or the Afghan army could last about 90 days, right? Well, it's actually a really logistics and procurement process. Who's going to buy bullets for the Afghan army and then ship them into Afghanistan? Pardon me. Afghanistan. It's like, well, we don't know. Like there's the central authority in Afghanistan was so weak that they probably couldn't procure equipment for their units out in like the uh, hinterlands of Afghanistan. So like the, the collapse was kind of this uh, thing that they were just like, well, these guys can't even like get food, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, beans, bullets, band-aids for their own um, for their own troops. And so that was where, so there was expected there's some degree of expectation that they're going to collapse. But, you know, this this is the, the thing is so the Afghan army had about 350,000, well, on paper, had 350,000 men under arms. And then there's all these other Afghan security forces. So possibly there's like 400,000 men ready for combat, hypothetically speaking, in Afghanistan. Well, anybody who's been on the ground will tell you that's like pure hypothetical. It was like, I didn't really have to direct, I didn't have to manage the patrol of Afghans, but I know people who have, and I got to, I was on patrols while, we were patrolling jointly with Afghans. They would forget equipment. They would forget weapons. They would sell equipment. They would sell weapons. They would show up high. Sometimes they wouldn't show up in uniform. Like, and they would sometimes some of them would break. Like, if they uh, took too much com- combat without Americans present, you know, like for what it's worth, like I don't know. I wasn't there. If like they're not, if I'm not there, I don't know what the circumstances of them br- running are, but. There was just no esprit de corps. There's no unity. There's no central command that was able to keep everybody in place. And the Afghan government is kind of a like it's a bunch of PhDs from Columbia University. They're running it. It's like these aren't inspiring men, you know, to who are gonna get people to go to go to war for them. And so it was it was kind of a paper tiger, maybe not even a tiger, but like one of those like large tabby cats you see running around <laughs> Afghanistan. Um, and so they, it, w- it was not a, pra- a real fighting force in terms of like a normal fighting force. And so it was very easy for the Taliban to go through, surround, destroy the couple pockets of resistance, 
and there's probably mass defections. When I was in Afghanistan, you'd have Afghan army and police commanders talking to the Taliban local commander on the phone, you know, because they would try to like have gentlemen's agreements of like not having to fight each other and things like that. And so they probably just like straight up texted a dude like, hey man, we're, we're gonna surround you and kill all your friends, or you can just like go home. And people are like, yeah, I'll go home. Like the, we talk about, um, talk about the new Afghan rebellion force. It's just a civil war. It's been a civil war since 1979. But this new rebellion force that's been created, basically the Northern Alliance part two. Well, like, you know, if you're somebody who's dedicated to defeating the Taliban, why would you stand and fight with the Afghan army when you could just like go with where all the other fighters are going, you know? So like they're, you know, they also took probably numbers out of the Afghan army. There's, it's just not a practical, re- realistic fighting force. And so even though the Taliban numbered between 50 and 75,000, you know, hypothetically, how many of those are actually combat troops? Like how many of them were there? Like the Afghan army could have stayed and held, um, you know, in place with or without air force. Like that's a total cope. You got people have fought wars before there was air power, you know, and in fact, like one of the bloodiest wars in human history, World War One, was almost done almost completely with, without air power. You could just dig trenches and uh, have it out for decades potentially, but they didn't. And that's the reality of it is that the Afghan army wasn't going to hold. So Tucker has a great quote, which is that it seems like the purpose of the American military at this point is to make the world safe for banking. Um, what do you think the financial incentives are, not just for uh, the war in Afghanistan and its continued um, endurance, even as an entire new generation of people was born who were never there for the start, uh, but also American foreign policy more broadly being everywhere all the time, causing destabilizing events uh, and enriching military contractors. Yeah, so you know it's a very it's a very good point, and um, the only reason why I don't like directly attack banking is because it it becomes like this mono company culture, right? It's like the banks and the certain companies that are involved heavily in international trade, like Nike, they become and the Coca Cola, for example, Coca Cola has energy drink plants in Afghanistan, like um, you know, like some of the best energy drinks I've ever had are afghan flavor afghan afghan um uh halal energy drinks <laughs> i do i do want to say that when we walked into the studio around ten fifty, yeah. adam was drinking a monster right uh. well so I, I get the complaint that i talk too slow so i've had, figured i had to up the manic energy for yeah. this so um we uh so anyways but the, these companies they have a financial incentive to have a uh, liberalized system uh, uh, here or abroad. Um, the financial institutions want certain abilities to go and uh, perform whatever type of financial role. In Afghanistan, it's probably more merchant banking than any sort of like true investment banking. Um, but, you know, like that's that's a large part of the um, what has been called, you know, the GAE by Darren Beatty. It's like, it's really not American. So, I and it's um, because... Can you explain for our listeners what GAE yeah, stands so for? Yeah, it's, so it's um, the globalist American empire. and it, But the thing is, it's not an American thing. No one says the globalist Chinese empire, right? It's more, But that's really what it is. But like, but it's like, it's not American, though. Yeah. It's an it's a internationalist uh, clique, right? It's like it's a group of people who um, 
predominantly live in these major financialized cities, New York, London, Hong Kong, et cetera, who are engaged in um, kind of this uh, international capital they seek to profit from kind of being the intermediaries of exchange between different nation states. And they largely just don't care about the actual um, day-to-day functioning of a country. And so like, that's really part of the drive for Afghanistan, uh, probably a softer drive than say like a place like Iraq was because the Afghanistan, there was a military objective at one point, Al-Qaeda, you know, which we supposedly destroyed. I'm pretty sure we did. I didn't see very many Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, but I was in Helmand province. Like we didn't really even have Haqqani network and uh, it was just like straight Taliban. Um, But, you know, so like there is this meta drive for an American intervention across the globe. Um, And that's the thing is like anytime that there's already been intervention, this becomes part of the issue du jour of like pushing, um, continuously pushing Americans and American interests into this country further and further and not uh, pulling out and like not accomplishing military objectives, accomplishing social objectives. And th- there's this dunk out there about people saying, oh, you know, this is we can't turn uh, uh, Afghanistan into a Jeffersonian republic. Well, the United States isn't a Jeffersonian republic either. So like that's part of the, that's the other half of the joke is that we, we have a federalist system. We have this national identity you know, we're not this perfectly agrarian nation state. And like, no one wants that. No one wants to basically be an easy colony, right? And so whether that's, you know, whoever it is, you have to, when you're doing military intervention, you have to seek some sort of military objective. Otherwise it becomes this thing that, you know, master students from uh, top universities are trying to change the world for ambiguous purposes. Yeah. Well, you know, if they want to be a perfectly agrarian Jeffersonian uh, republic, um, you know, the poppy plant seems like a great source for their their farming needs. Uh, Absolutely. But this 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 takes us to another thing that that you've been really influential on us and, and I think uh, speak very, um, you know, concisely about, which is the sort of loser economics that the right has championed for a long time. You wrote a piece in Revolver News that was excellent. Um, It was called Against the Loser Economics of the GOP Establishment, Cold Turkey on Neoliberal Addiction. Um, You were at the uh, U.S. Treasury during the Trump administration. You have worked at a hedge fund on Wall Street. You you actually know what you're talking about when it comes to this sort of thing. Uh, What was the basic thesis of the piece, and and how do you think about economics more broadly? So... um... I guess the uh, both to answer both is that there's a there's this concept called free trade and it's a concept it doesn't really exist in the real world the trade is a consequence of norms uh, of like like I mean this is like real Aristotle hours right now but norms laws traditions you know and also agreements like these are conscious decisions like trade does not just happen in a vacuum in fact it's not a natural state of man like natural state of man is some sort of feudal system, Afghanistan, the Middle Ages, um, you know, pre, uh, pre-Columbian uh, Americas, etc. Like these are things that are sophisticated. Uh, trade is a sophisticated national and international trade is a sophisticated concept that requires an advanced system of laws, property rights, all these things. And so when you're a nation state, um, you have it's it's more business school than it is like economics right and this is the thing that there's this huge disconnect people in economics classes learn free trade's great 
you know, it becomes like a, you know, it's a liberal version of the libertarian love fest of like, oh, we can trade with anybody and where uh, things where materials don't cross borders, nation armies do. Um, but that's not the reality. Like liberal democracies are some of the most warlike countries in the, in the in, since they've been around. And it's and it's not just because of the economics, but it's it's ha it's downstream from this neoliberal or liberal economics theory of uh, trade is a universal good and that there there is a profit motive for actors in an economy that does make it good. And that's that's where this is where libertarians get it right, where they get it wrong. And uh, also conservatives and Democrats, like everybody is a neoliberal basically in this city. Um, where they get it wrong is the collective action problem where like as a polity, like you uh, benefit from prioritizing your own people more over uh, interests of foreigners. And it's incumbent upon you to negotiate how trade actually is conducted between your polity and other polities, right? You know, the only thing that takes that prevents 40 people, 40 families from running the, the globe is the fact that there's borders, nations, uh, popular elections, etc. Um, and that's the thing is by removing the, these boundaries, these these cultural norms and like uh, allowing everybody to vote, allowing nobody to vote, because that's what our system kind of is trending towards is that um, absolute mass enfranchisement, regardless of citizenship, um, as well as uh, the inability for elected leaders to actually influence the system. So like the administrative state, these uh, deep state bureaucracies. So the reason for this stuff is precisely because it opens up um it, it opens up and prohibits uh restrictions on international trade international finance and all that stuff and so that's basically the long and short of it so but you know in terms of the benefiting of a country you, there's almost no reason why you should engage in unlimited trade because there's political reasons why um why you are a nation why you're in charge of a country and why like why you're supposed to keep after it, look after it. And it's like, it's the China problem that we're starting to see. You know, this is where kind of like the America first thing actually made beachhead is that people are like, oh, wow, like China, China is a serious global competitor. It's like we, just because the Cold War kind of put a temporary end to history of great power struggles doesn't mean that now that there's going to be none of those. In fact, we're like, these are not, these aren't countries, no, None of our allied countries are perfect allies, right? They they have to look out for their own self-interest. They're going to look out for their self-interest. They are competitors as well in the global market. And so, you know, we have to, as a political uh, political grouping, the, the political right, we have to start realizing that we have to uh, be competitive too, right? We have to have economic systems that are competitive or we're just chumps and we just want to get beat up on the street corner. Yeah, I mean, this is why, like, Canada should not want to have free trade with us regarding maple syrup. Like, they should just they should just be making it in their country, not buying it from us, right? Well, so it's a little—Canada, Australia, countries like that, New Zealand, it's really difficult because you're talking about countries that are inordinately smaller than the country that they're—is um, their—to uh, put it politely, their suzerain. And so, you know, Canada's in an interesting position where they both have the United Kingdom and the United States as, like, yeah. historical long-term trade partners. It but, was just the first example that came into my yeah. head of, like, something that was in the national interest to produce in your own country, maple syrup. You well, can tell what's on my mind. Right, <laughs> but it's, like, the, it's the problem with Hungary and Poland, right, is that, like, 
as nationalistic as they are, they're still largely sort of like they're bigger satellites, but they're still like satellites of yeah. bigger countries in the European Union. Yeah. So in the past, you know, you've you contrasted a lot of these, you know, uh, neoliberal or libertarian economic ideas with uh, a Hamiltonian vision of economics uh, present since the founding. Uh, can you tell us a little more about, you know, what exactly that is, why Hamilton's thinking around economics are still relevant today? Yeah. So, you know, Hamilton was uh, faced with a country that didn't have a lot of money and that we were very likely to be attacked again by the British Empire at some point in the future. And so, you know, we have to. So we had to be able to produce our own goods, our own material goods. And um sounds strange in the modern era but like you you actually controlling some uh, portion of your own production is freedom right because you're no longer reliant upon um, foreign institutions and outsiders to produce your own goods especially war material that's why we have a defense industry right but uh, secondarily to that especially commercial uh, consumer goods you know these things allow you to have uh, political autonomy from other countries like Canada is not that autonomous from the United States because it relies on the United States for so much of their own things, you know, and it's probably never can actually be like autarkic for, for a reason. But, and this is, it's not a system of autarky, which is the American system of political economy. It's this concept that for the most part, we're better off um, making our own things wherever possible is the concept, is the core concept. So Hamilton wanted to uh, create industry in the United States manufacturing or manufacturers as they would say back then um especially in his famous report report on manufacturers i believe it's 1789 um in uh basically he lays out the system for why we use tariffs subsidies um to grow industry in the united states and uh develop infrastructure because the infrastructure in the united states was pathetic and we also owned a lot of the territory up into the mississippi river area quite very rapidly after uh, after the War of 1812. So if you're going to become a nation that can actually exert its own political will on your own nation, you have to be able to do things and build things and go places. Boy, for the libertarians that listen to this show, this must sound like nails on a chalkboard. <laughs> like, no, the founders were for tariffs. Oh, absolutely. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. I can uh, turn up the ASMR voice a little bit for for them to make, <laughs> to make it a little bit more palatable. But they... Uh, yeah, no, the founders were practical. Like, you got to remember the term ideology doesn't enter the English language to the 20th century, the early 20th century, roughly after World War One. So, like, instead of being ideological, they're just normal. <laughs> Simply be normal. Yeah. And this also applies to economics. Another figure that uh, has been uh, sort of brought into the discourse as historical examples of uh, of this worldview, giving antecedents to it, is, is Henry Clay. How did he picture into all of this? So Henry Clay was kind of the student of Hamilton that Hamilton never met. There, the, there's a very interesting thing with the American system of political economy where a lot of these people actually never met each other, but they're uh, fans from a distance. Mm -hmm. So Henry Clay um, was both a U.S. senator and a spe the Speaker of the House. Um, very, very influential person. Um, probably one of the most influential men in American history who never became president. Um, he decided elections. He decided a lot of uh, things. He tried several times to become president, did not get to do so. Um, so Henry Clay, uh, was uh, when he was born, his family had a slave. 
or two. And um, when he became an adult and took over the family estate, he freed the slave. And, um, you know, that's really kind of his formative economic thinking was the fact that like people should be able to own their own means of production. Right. Which is all right. So we're starting to feel the little libertarian vibe of like paying people for their work. So but, you know, that also extends to a nation. Right. Especially a developing nation that has to deal with uh, foreign powers. And so the War of 1812 was very, um, very important for his development, um, as well as the development of his future rival, John C. Calhoun. Um, and they became this part of this nation, nascent nationalist movement. Um, the United States was a uh, very nationalistic country before Woodrow Wilson, really, or Teddy Roosevelt, I guess, um, that, you know, we, we became very nationalistic after the War of 1812. The United States actually largely is in a way, influencer of global uh, national movements, like you know, talk about the unification of Italy, Germany, et cetera, um, because of the what we inspired out of our own ability to buckle down and bootstrap our own nation. Um, so Henry Clay took those ideas and refined them uh, of, by Hamilton and like created sets of policies uh, that the United States could uh, adhere to, um, both as like kind of a political rhetoric tool but as, also as a practical guide, because Hamilton kind of was more concerned with his like actual duties as a treasury secretary. And he was killed um, before he could actually like do some sort of long term project. But he uh, but Henry Clay actually took the time to implement it. And especially during his to- uh, tenure in the House and Senate, he was largely concerned with the growing problem of slavery in the United States. You know, he was very anti slavery, but the other thing that slavery also brings in is that um, it brings in the the it basically turns you into a, a colony, right? Because it makes it less expensive to produce uh, cash crops as opposed to even cereals, which was the predominant uh, crop of the North, and basically ends up creating this subsidy uh, and also creates a speculative market on human people, um, sort of like you know mortgage-backed securities. And uh, what it allowed is basically this backdoor uh, by European powers into United States affairs. And so the trying to prevent the slavery from expanding westward, you know, the you know, various um, Missouri compromises, things like that, were actually kind of this uh, geopolitical struggle between, you know, America, you know, Americans and the uh, British Empire and the French Empire. Um, And so, you know, and part of the way of creating this national economics, this American system of na- economics, it would also uh, starve out and it would basically strangle the slave economy by making it no longer economically feasible because the United States would end up becoming such a manufacturing powerhouse that it became would be cheaper to compensate people by with dollars rather than uh, with just food, like how slaves were actually compensated um, or compensated more so. And so... It was this uh, very like high, like, you know, 4D chess, you know, giga brained um, concept <laughs> of how do we deal with both the slavery problem and our uh, f- and foreign influence in the United States? You know, raising tariffs, uh, increasing manufacturing subsidies, building railroads in- and predominantly improving infrastructure in the deep south. So it'd be easier to actually produce goods in the south because like part of the problem south with the south was it was impossible to get around. So to back up a little bit, you talked about, you know, the United States kind of walking away from its nationalist tendencies in the early 1900s. Um, and I, I think 
historically where we see free trade or this ideology of free trade uh, in the United States, but also on the right, really start to explode is uh, during and and following World War II. Um, and, and, you know, China has utilized kind of a, a similar playbook to, to, you know, take a lot of the uh, manufacturing base uh, of, of, of the global economy. Um, how should the United States and, and, and conservative, conservatives more broadly begin to think about, you know, this, these issues around, around free trade? I mean, it's, it's probably not enough to just say, hey, don't do that. <laughs> right. So there's like, there's three major time frames to get for people here um, listening in to understand what is actually going on with free trade. There's three um, there's the great free trade crisis of the 1850s where the slave economy took really took off right before the Civil War. Um, you know, this is uh, this is what uh, the Henry Carey, the Abraham Lincoln's uh, economic advisor, de- described it. And that's when you started seeing, you know, the was it the Nebraska, Kansas, you know, bleeding Kansas and all that mm-hmm. stuff because of the fact that free trade actually became rampant in the United States or United States and abroad. The second time is the what's after the Great Reproachment in the era, in the beginning of the progressivism. Most Americans don't. Most conservative Americans think that British conservatives and American conservatives are alike, and they're really not that much, as you see with Boris Johnson and the continued lockdowns in the United Kingdom. Um, the British conservatism is a free trade conservatism because it's an island nation. Mm-hmm. The United States is a national uh, economics conservatism is nationalism in the united states that's alexander hamilton's conservatism because we span a continent and have every resource under the sun right and we're both a land power and a sea power you know and then the the third period was right after world war ii so right after world war ii um we opened up our economy to help build the the first world this block that ended up becoming nato and uh, the various other allies against the soviet union um, but that's also when you started seeing this mass import of British conservative ideas into American conservatism, starting with Russell Kirk. And that's it's really weird. Like we could probably do a whole episode of like why you should take everything after Kirk with a uh, uh, you know a little bit of salt, you know, salt to taste. But um, but yeah, so, you know, in, in terms of what happened with China and so what happened to a lot of other countries that we had some sort of relationship with, especially wartime. They ended up just copying us, right? So when we opened up Japan, they were like, wow, these Americans have a great idea. So they actually just adopted uh, Friedrich List, who wrote uh, the na- uh, the National System of Economics, which is basically carbon copy of the American system. Um, we physically exported that to Japan twice, second time right after World War II, um, as part of our occupation there. And then you know you had Park Chung-hee in uh, Korea, who literally just when he was in Japan, he as part of his studies in the military academy was uh, the military um, industrial complex of the United States. And so he read this stuff in the translated Japanese and he applied that to uh, Korea, creating, you know, the uh, modern Korean companies that we were familiar with today. Um, you know, same thing when Deng Xiaoping became um, whatever they use over there, premier, prime minister, president, um, you know, guy in charge of China, um, he literally had books on Hamilton. He had books on um, 
Lincoln. He had all these guys, uh, the Henry Clay, Henry Carey, uh, Friedrich List, uh, all translated, available for uh, their consumption to uh, adopt these ideas and apply them in a more modern sense to China. And that's the thing. So when I went upon a day when I worked in finance still, um, a hedge fund manager uh, once said to me and a bunch of other people that China is more like America during the Industrial Revolution than is like a um, country that's like in the technological revolution like we are. And he's like- They're a developmental state. And he he didn't like to use that phrase because it's like, it's he's like, a, a, uh, contextually it's different. He's like, this is a country that relies on commodities and industrial production. And it's uh, growing towards a more modern system. But, you know, like with that thought, with that like kind of planted in my brain years ago when I was still kind of like not like, as like savvy on uh, national economics as I was comparing it to what has actually occurred today. People dunk on the Chinese about, oh, they built new bridges to nowhere and these uh, empty cities. It's like, well, they have affordable housing now and also they can build a big Navy. Like that's, that's really the thing. It's like you can get around the country on car or train now pretty easily, more easily than parts of the United States. And now they're going to transition that, oh, that heavy steel manufacturing and, um, and parts that would build a building or a bridge into making ships and becoming a dominant sea power. And that's the thing is these things have trickle uh, trickle down effects on each other. Knock on effects actually is probably a better word um, because your ability to produce things is your ability to produce things. Your ability to make be a service economy is great, but what what happens when they figure out how to remote your job overseas? Yeah. Then you don't. You actually have no institutional knowledge built up. He said trickle down, and I like started sweating. <laughs> yeah, it's kind yeah. of well, a little gross. It's now. funny. There, there's even a modern analog to the fact that that these uh, East Asian regimes were importing uh, Hamilton and List and all these folks. Uh, I've been told on reliable information that uh, American Affairs is a very popular quarterly in China. That they have a lot of readers out there because really? yeah, because That's it epic. turns out that uh you know when uh when you have a good idea you can use it well that's the thing about the ideology point i made earlier is that if you have pure ideological thinking towards things then you become you know neocons or libertarians or like neolibs or whatever the flavor of like the democrat version is or if you're practical and realistic like you can call yourself a communist but like apply the things that American founding fathers thought were like just common sense policies in your country. Right. Yeah. I'm for good things and against bad things. That's right. Generally. Yes. No <laughs> ideology. Just that. Right. It's like, uh, you know, strive to be aggressively normal. Yeah. In all things. Um, pivoting a little bit, uh, your most recent position that you held before you you transitioned to the private sector was uh, in the Census Bureau and then in, in the U.S. Treasury Department. Um, you wrote a fantastic piece after you left government about what went down at the Census Bureau when you were there. Uh, you caused a little bit of a stir. Tell us uh, why you pissed in people's cornflakes. So there's going to be some more cornflakes. Uh, you know, be uh, I, I don't want to accidentally swear. So like they'll you know, well I'll be ruffling a few more feathers pretty soon too. But so the problem. So once you when I got to Census Bureau, I thought, oh, this is Census Bureau. I worked there already. This is cool. Like, this is great. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, wow, this is not great. This is literally the deep state. So one of the big problems the Republican Party has is that we actually have no um, no uh, 
sorry, we, we basically have no experts on things like the census. And this is partly because the 1990s uh, reduction in uh, uh, payroll for congressional staff, right? We basically have very few uh, experts in the field and the Democrats are willing to spend private dollars on uh, private experts. But we're really good at school choice, Adam. Oh, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, school choice is actually a really good example of like uh, just punting on like the issue of like schools, like the school, like people try driving people to uh, run for school board is one of the greatest things that has happened in terms of ideas, you know, for education reform, because that's actually an idea and that's a policy agenda and you can drive policy. School choice, like a lot of the charter schools are pretty liberal. A lot of private schools in New York City are extremely liberal. So it's like, you know, okay, we're not really getting anything done there. But with the Census Bureau, Census Bureau is like remarkably liberal, remarkably political. It's supposed to be, quote unquote, an independent agency, but it's really actually not legally an independent agency. It's actually falls under purview of the Secretary of the Commerce Department or sorry, Secretary of Commerce at the Commerce Department. So politicals actually have supervisory authority there. Um, and so once we were there, there's all sorts of things that the Census Bureau just does without ever really asking substantial permission. And Congress is kind of unaware that they're doing. Um, so, you know, there's a variety of issues. In my article, I talked about group quarters imputation. So imputation is where they basically use an educated guessing tool to uh, guess when uh, how many people live in a household based off of uh, when they don't respond to it. Um, now, they do have some caveats where they try to zero out certain houses based off of a, of a, a reasonable rate of like empty households. But, you know, you really can't tell 100% sure. So they it's but they say on a large enough scale, they actually are pretty it's pretty accurate. But there's no post imputation um, um, survey to actually double check to see if anybody actually lived there. Um, and, uh, and there's a Supreme Court case, Utah versus Evans, that upheld imputation as a method that the uh, Secretary of Commerce can use to, um, to do uh, the census, to uh, make sure the numbers are counted accurately. Yeah. Very concretely, this is, you know, you have houses A, B, and C. Houses A and C, uh, you know, fill out their census form every 10 years and send it in, but house B does not. And so based on kind of sort of what the neighborhood looks like and what house A and C are, the Census Bureau just guesses. There's five people who live here, uh, they're African-American, and there you go. Right. And that the thing, though, that gets it, it gets really funky, though, once you start looking at it. So they try to match numbers to the most similar household by size and uh, characteristic. But if you have no characteristics inside the household, you're basically doing a purely off size. So um, and it, things get really weird once you start talking about where imputation largely occurs. It largely occurs in very rural areas and very urban areas, which tend to have the least they have. It, it, they tend to be the most extreme on the bell curve. They're most dissimilar from everything else in the middle. And um, especially with in rural areas, you have household sizes that are going to be completely radically different. Mm -hmm. um, it could be one old grandpa on a farm. It could be 14 children. Exactly. And then same thing with cities, right? Like I remember when I was in Flushing, Queens, there was like little shanty towns on some of these apartment buildings of like illegal apartments. It's like, how do you count those? Yeah. You know, I don't know. Are they even apartments or are they just like shacks that people built on top of the roof? I have no idea. 
Like there's weird things that happen in this, some of these places. Um, so like you, that's why the founders, the uh, the framers of the Constitution, they actually wanted no a census person to actually hand count every single person, just because there's all sorts of uh, shenaniganry and variety that actually does occur. Um, so, but what what ended up happening in this census because of COVID panic, uh, lockdowns, and just the general resistance to Trump, the Census Bureau tried to rewrite their own um, timeline. But the Constitution has no force majeure, which means like you can't you can't just blow through a, a timeline without approval from Congress, right? There's never going to be approval from Congress on the census because the state constitutions have primacy over. Uh, redistricting right they they will win in court if you do that so like the census bureau had to get it done so we had to force the census bureau first of all to actually do its job um which they didn't they refused they basically went kicking and screaming of course the second part is um when you get to group quarters group quarters are facilities that people live in that they typically receive a service like dorms uh, jails military bases and uh, nursing homes are like the prime examples of it well, so military bases can enumerate themselves, count their people themselves. Jails and prisons generally also do too. So you, what you're actually talking about is dorms and nursing homes and facilities like those, right? Um, and so what happened in the census was one in five of these group quarters overall did not report numbers at all. Pause intentionally. The um, Then you had... So one in five of them didn't do it, and they're mostly heavily weighted towards dorms and nursing homes. All right, so things are starting to get weird. I see like people's, uh, your eyes start like, wow, this is some wild stuff. So Stephen Moore wrote an article, where did the Census Bureau get two and a half million people in deep blue states in the Northeast? Well, I don't know if they actually got two and a half million people. Like there, I don't, I can't see like the num numerical process, but they could definitely have shaved extra people into those numbers just through imputation because they what they did was this thing called group quarters imputation first of all so the ap said that this is a rare thing that occurs and uh they it, it almost it never happens in group quarters or something to that effect uh i apologize if i get it wrong because mike schneider will correct me of course um but that's actually not true they the census bureau has done group quarters imputation in the past and it hasn't been challenged but so with one in five facilities floor um, that are, didn't report. And the fact that nursing homes and uh, dormitories tend to be fairly dissimilar from each other. It's, it's extremely hard to do an apples to apples comparison. So if you have a house block where A through Z or house A and uh, uh, house M are identical, like you can actually make, there the Census Bureau's argument is you can make a reasonable assessment within a margin of error that they're going to have the same amount of people in them. But with nursing home facilities of wildly different sizes, wildly different demographics, a lot of nursing homes don't share the demographic makeup of their uh, their actual neighborhood, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, you're you're actually shooting at the wind, and because there's no um, there's no actual method for you to do it uh, apples to apples comparison, you have to invent a way to do it. You have to go reverse engineer it. And this is where I start saying there you have to use a linear regression to do it. I also know some things about the census, but basically what they did was this, they created probably a linear regression model of like trying to accurately assess how many people should have been in the, these nursing home facilities um, 
for example, or dormitories on uh, April 1st, uh, 2020. That's actually statistical sampling, according to uh, the Supreme Court, both. Um, so on in the Utah versus Evans case, which is the most important case in the census uh, here, uh, Breyer and also O'Connor, who uh, Breyer wrote, wrote the majority decision. O'Connor wrote the probably the best of the dissenting opinions, Scalia and um, um, somebody else also dissented. But uh, O'Connor, they both uh, both uh, Breyer and O'Connor actually made statistical arguments and both of them agree what statistically statistically sampling is and linear regression would actually be a statistical sample because you're actually taking a base sample and applying it to an unknown rather than a known to a known to a somewhat known right there, there's not enough constraints here and so but you know and so where, where do the numbers come from well one of the th arguments that are, this is going to bring up is that you need 760,000 people to create a new congressional district not true. Even though that's the average representation of it, you only need um, you only need a few thousand people in each of these uh, states where there's heavy imputation to actually change uh, apportionment for another state. It's because these th these states are actually rank ordered based off the apportionment formula. So anything that knocks down a state in uh, by some in the uh, ranking order and increases another or just like makes another one stay about the same as it would have been, basically ends up uh, giving more seats to somebody else. And that's the thing is apportionment, or sorry, imputation, um, normal imputation tends to favor blue states over red states. Um, and it tends to favor specifically blue areas over red areas in states. Um, so like the rule argument is saying like, oh, it helps Republicans is, is a, on its face actually just false. It's not a... Republicans answer the census. Democrats tend to not answer the census. <laughs> it's very bizarre social trends. And plus also with all the um, racial agitation the media does, they actively encourage that to not happen. And then there's the other problem with imputation. So a group core's imputation is probably against the rules. It should be challenged. Um, there's FOIAs out there trying to get the information on it. I hope that some someone's able to actually crack the case so that there's some sort of action can be taken on it because the Census Bureau should not be doing root cores imputation. Um, census Bureau should be compelling these places to at least enumerate themselves as they can't do it um, because of COVID lockdowns. Um, but um, the that aside, um, regular imputation is a problem. Like So one of the things that's referenced in imputation documents out there, um, and I'm sorry this is getting a little too technical. No, but, no, this is really good. But they... Um, the, where's the basis of imputation, right? And so it's really hard to figure it out because no, not a lot of uh, census documents talk about it. But the ones that are interesting are whenever like NAACP or other organizations sues the census. And because then the census has to defend itself. And so in um, uh, NAACP of Prince George's County versus the Census Bureau, I think they sued the director, uh, Steve Dillingham at the time, um, I believe. I could be wrong. They, uh, the lawyers for the uh, for the government actually mentioned the population estimate of why they think um, imputa uh, the imputa imputed numbers of Prince George's County in 2010 were actually reasonably accurate based off of a uh, population estimate, and that's insane because that's also statistical sampling. So, are you basing justifying imputation based off of a statistical sample, or are you doing? Uh, imputation uh, because of uh, some sort of thing that's a priori important about 
uh, statistical of uh, the information. And this becomes a question of epistemology, of like knowledge of, of your ability to know things. And the Census Bureau does all sorts of really clever ways to avoid saying that they actually just don't know something. And it's fine to say you don't know. That's the point of these methods. It's the question is like, are you applying these unknowns to unknown unknowns or are you these known unknowns? Or what's the kind of the, what's the structure of these things? So the other issue with the census, and this actually recently just came out, well, actually there's multiple other issues, but is the differential privacy. Differential privacy is this algorithm which makes blurs the lines of these uh, census block tracks by uh, moving people outside of where they're actually reported on locations. And the idea is that uh, basically with supercomputers, you can actually identify people with uh, public and free, excuse me, public and free information combining with the census. So they scramble this numbers, but the problem is these are numbers that have to be used by both demographers, uh, the states, the counties, um, also the federal government for uh, uh, um, appropriations. Uh, also, they need to be able to determine the boundaries for congressional districts and state uh, and state house and state senate uh, districts, as well as a variety of other places. Um, and so, you're actually making these things intentionally not accurate um, by doing so. And so, basically, like the, the, the we have a new problem that we've never felt uh, faced before is that these borders of these state of uh, these congressional districts are not going to be accurate by just because of differential privacy. Um, this is actually a uh, this is a, a passion project by one of the uh, assistant directors there. Um, you know, this is like kind of his magnum opus before he retires and he's trying to like um, make a big name for himself. But this has a bipartisan um, um, opposition. Actually, actually, the opposition is way stronger on the Democrat side because they just have the experts to do it. Uh, but, the, you know, no one wants this. Members of Congress don't want this. And there's been no real challenge to it. And the Biden administration has just like rubber stamped it through for some reason. And partly because they probably don't understand it either, you know, and this is going to be a huge problem. And meanwhile, in HR 4, I believe it is, they actually have this uh, provision there that you wouldn't be you wouldn't be legally able to challenge the borders of minority and majority districts under uh, under some law or provision that they put into it, which the, the problem is with that is that if there's some sort of inaccuracy because of the census creating inaccuracy, you're basically not allowed to uh, sue or have recourse for this inaccuracy because of this uh, law. And so part of me, like, you know, my spidey senses start tingling, you know, it really gets a noggin jogging. It's like, who know who else knows that the Census Bureau is um, kind of like creating this situation where it stacks odds against Republicans. And why is this? Because the census was going to turn out really, really, really bad for the Democrats, um, you know, because of urbanization, variety of other factors uh, going on, the Trump, the Trump revolt, like the Trump uh, Republican reformation, the the places where that were typically more purple are getting more red and and these uh, deep blue districts are getting deeper blue. And so what ended up happening is you, you probably would have seen, you could see a permanent clean sleep sweep of um, the of the House and Senate till, you know, 2032. And so that's that's what uh, this is. This is the, the great crisis of this is that these guys are intentionally applying method methodologies to intentionally affect 
the election. Like everybody talks about the problems of the popular vote. The you know the the to nullify even the normal electoral college, you just uh, just change a little bit of uh, marginal policy here and marginal policy there. Rhode Island was within a few thousand or a few ten thousand uh, people, uh, and they would have lost a seat. They probably would have lost it to Texas if I did my math correctly. Um, and you know this is actually a serious issue. You know this is about everything. This is you know straight constitutional issues. This is about the deep state. This is like some uh, you know high tier you know combination of like you know how how should we run our government? How should we have a Republican uh, a domestic policy agenda? Um, how should the uh, how should we have a bipartisan agreement on anything? This this is a place where we can have bipartisan agreement on. You know this is. Um, you know, this is the this is a lot of things that culminate into this one issue. And the problem is that other than Hans von Spakovsky at Heritage and maybe Mike Gonzalez at Heritage, there's really not a lot of people who have even touched this in the professional uh, academic sense. It's me and two other people from the Census Bureau. And, you know, they're on the outs. You know, I'm the closest thing to a political insider that they that has it. So, you know, I'm evangelizing the issue. But. I don't, I don't, I'm concerned we'll actually never have any recourse on any of this stuff, or at least even crack over the lid, see if I'm right. I'm happy to be wrong. I'd prefer to be wrong because this would be horrible if we're wrong. Well, and it, it right. seems like this, like the, f- the framework you just laid out where there's this enormously politically consequential issue that requires deep expertise that is fundamentally controlled by the administrative state is reflected in every single department and every single agency across the federal government. And that... Republicans and conservatives have been asleep at the wheel for the last 40 years in terms of developing the skill sets that you would need in order to have a fighting chance of actually influencing this stuff. And so, I mean, did where else did you see versions of this in the administration? I mean, it, it, it seems like it was everywhere. Yeah. So the Treasury Department also has its problems, but um, Treasury Department's run is a little bit different than most departments. Uh, because of the fact that we have so much access to a lot of like very important things, and it's one of the, um, oh, I can't remember the British term for it. It's one of the top tier departments. Um, it's one of the, one of the more prestigious places to be. Um, there's actually a British term for it that's really really good that we should. That's few one of the few things we should import from the British system. <laughs> um, and uh, they, um, so like you saw that a lot of times because. Um, how do you become somebody who wants to be a top level career treasury department person? Well, you went to the right schools, you have the right resume, right credentials, you say the right things and you go right in. Like, you know, the same thing happens with um, military promotions, except for military promotions, at least at the very bottom, are much more reflective of the actual general population. You know, towards the top, it uh, breaks off, but you have to find somebody who gets their PhD at a top five, top 10 um, economics program for, pardon me, for example, who don't want to work on Wall Street, you know, and want, uh, wants to cap out their maximum salary at $150,000 a year, potentially in 10 to 20 years from then. That's like, that's a certain kind of person. Um, the Republican Party just doesn't elevate those types of people to begin with. And secondly, like we have this culture, we have this, we have a really, in terms of public policy, we have really bizarre uh, culture. And it's, I've kind of blame 
you know, some of the reforms of the 90s that on this uh, were really kind of dissuaded Republicans from engaging in hardcore policy. Um, there's too much consolidation among the think tanks to particular focus areas rather than actually having broad based uh, domestic policy agendas. There's a lot of places that you can put blame on, but is that like we don't actually talk very much policy issues. The Democrats have a really strong bifurcation and, um, and kind of allocation of work and resources. There's people who do explicitly policy. There's people who do explicitly politics. People do stuff in between. Um, they have huge amounts of people who are capable at any given time to actually render opinions that are, um, that are substantial and legitimate uh, on different issues for from any type, uh, side the take of it. Like even uh, you know, was a DSA, um, you know, the like the Democratic Socialists, Social Democrats, whatever they're called. They even have people who are policy wonks who can uh, comment on it. Like there is, I think. Um, saw a tweet by Ryan Gerdusky about this actually where like there's all these progressives who actually uh, like hardcore radical progressives who actually got uh, appointee positions because they actually knew how to play the, the game. They got the credentials in, they, they did the writing, you know, they're communicative, they're professional, and they got into these various positions as personnel as policy. And um, it's, um, you know, that's something we just refuse to learn for some reason. We don't we don't reward our own. We don't actually elevate them to positions of influence. And we punt on a lot of domestic policy issues so that we can try to win some sort of agreement on things. But you have to, one of the things with government is you have to, you have to be explicit about what you want. You have to actually write it into law. You have to write it into policy because if you keep being implicit about it, then you, it can be interpretive, right? And that's the thing is that's what the American system of political economy is. It's an explicit affirmation of what we value and who we value. Yeah, America, Americans, and same thing with the policy agenda on the Hill, on in the executive branch. You have to uh, say what you mean, and you have to write it down. You can't just like uh, do this like ethereal um, uh, appeasement towards uh, ambiguous American values. You actually have to say what the value is. You know, and the same thing we have to. There has to be some real thought put into place. Otherwise, you know, it won't matter whether or not we can win elections or not because like the Democrats still just get their way because we just refuse to engage in normal politics. Yeah. Yeah, it, it does seem to be part of the the systemic problem on the right. And, and you know, thankfully, there were a, a few good men like yourself in the administration that learn this lesson in a hard way and in many ways inspire the, the work we're doing here at American Moment. Uh, real quick, Adam, where can people keep up with you, see what you're writing, see what you're saying and, and learn more? So um, my Twitter handle is at real Adam K. Um, I don't expect anyone to spell my last name for them. <laughs> um, and that's really the only place I'm at other than wherever I write. Um, so I've been seeing an American Spectator, um, the American Mind Revolver um, so far. So that's fantastic. Well, thank you for coming on the show and thank you for, for everything you do. Thank you for having me.
this week to point out some pieces on AmCan, and I just want to really encourage all of you to go and look at the pieces that we referenced during the episode. Adam has written fantastic pieces, specifically at Revolver News, about Hamiltonian economics. He has some coming out about the Afghanistan withdrawal, and he's written a fantastic piece uh, on the census at the American Mind as well. Would encourage you to check out all of them and his writing in general. Again, he's He's a rare example, uh, but a perfect example of the sort of thing that American Moment wants to do at scale, which is creating people who are relentless subject area experts, who have a mind towards public service, who are ultimately not going to make as much money as they would in the private sector. And Adam could make a ton of money in the private sector, but are going to be part of what prevents this country from sliding into darkness. He is a wealth of knowledge. Again, really uh, make sure that you take a look at those pieces on Amcanon and be sure to subscribe and share this podcast with friends of yours. If you're a Hill staffer and you thought that, dang, that was really interesting about the Census Bureau, maybe I'm going to get my boss to go file a bill about it. Great. Send it to every other Hill staffer you know as well. Uh, You know, if you rate and subscribe five stars and write, uh, write a review with a question in it, we'll be sure to answer it on the show. Uh, and uh, always send in feedback at podcast at americanmoment.org. We love to, every time I meet with someone in DC and they happen to mention they're a podcast fan, I always ask them, I say, I won't be offended. What actual feedback do you have? And it's mostly positive, but we have tweak certain things accordingly uh, based on the feedback we get. So please don't be a stranger. Send those five-star reviews in and we'll see you next week on Moment of Truth. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.